Hold up, Tottenham fans. Uh, this is Dan from the Spursy. We'd love for you to join our Discord. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Discord, basically it's a place where you can log in and chat in various topics and channels about anything Spurs related. We're on there most days, chatting away. It's completely free. Uh, we've also got a, a whole bunch of really lovely people who have joined that over the last couple of years. And it's just a really positive, lovely community um, on there. And it just kind of makes it pleasant to follow Spurs through all the ups and downs and, and everything that's going on. We, uh, we do a bunch of match day chats as well. And yeah, uh, we'd love to have you get in on that. So please head to abitspursy.com and follow the links to our Discord. Uh, they're also available in the bios for uh, all of our socials too. So, yeah, we'd love to see you there. And come on, you Spurs. Tottenham topple the champions on day one. Wow! He's taken the cover off that. A splendid goal from Son Heung-min, which gets Spurs off to a fly. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of A Bit Spursy. Now, today we are joined by a very special guest, Simon Yamane. Now, Simon is someone that I've spoken with on Twitter for a couple of years now, um, basically going, going back and forth over comments and uh, and in some DMs and very, very lovely guy and a very, very sort of positive, optimistic Spurs fan. So uh, we wanted to get him on the, the podcast. We've been wanting to do that for a little while and we finally managed to make that happen. So please enjoy this episode where we're chatting with Simon Yamane. So how you doing? This is the first time ever we, we we've talked like this, right? Yeah, I think the only other time we've uh, spoken very very briefly on one of your Twitter rooms is it rooms on Twitter? That's what it's called, right? Is it or spaces? It's called spaces. K boomer. <laughs> on one of your Twitter rooms, <laughs> they uh, log, log on to the site and see what's going on. I think I've we've we've spoken very briefly on one of those, but apart from that. Yeah. It's just been uh, just been text so far. Yeah, so this is uh, basically a blind date. Yeah. How are you feeling this far? Would you like put your red rose in your back pocket? Is putting a red rose in, my, in a back pocket, That's a, is that safety? Is that saying I don't want to continue the date? Exactly, because like, let's say we have a blind date and we have to have a marker that, you know, makes the other person know who's, who they're there to meet. Yeah, yeah. So you usually have like a red scarf or maybe red rose or maybe i don't know i've never done this actually i've just seen it in the movies <laughs> but like and then you see in that scene where oh the person that comes up is not your type so you kind of hide whatever marker you have yeah no my marker is just up in the air i'm waving it around i'm looking desperate in the middle <laughs> of the restaurant people are starting to ask the waiters <laughs> to come over and tell me to stop doing what i'm doing yeah exactly I'm so happy you nailed that because the explanation was so fucking boring. <laughs> no, it was good. It was good. You nailed the landing. <laughs> okay. I'm so happy to be speaking to Australia now because as I understand it, this is the biggest podcast in the country. Yeah. Until we find another Spurs podcast, then uh, then maybe there'll be a challenge to, to come through. But um... Yeah. As I understand it, you're really famous in Australia. You're like a football expert, and it's the biggest football podcast in Australia. And so I'm assuming now that we're speaking to dozens and dozens of people. Dozens of people will hear this. <laughs> and I'm a little bit nervous because I've never spoken Australian. 
but I hope everyone understands me. You said you've never spoken Australian before. What would be your you speaking Australian? I, I guess it's it's a, lo- a lot of uh, howdy y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, I'd, I'd say that's more Amer- American, but you're like the you're like the English cowboys. That's <laughs> you're the English cowboys, as I understand it. It's a lot of good day, mate. There we go. Howdy, y'all. Well, look, the good day, mate. Definitely on the money. You've nailed that one. Okay. The um the howdy, y'all. You've you've you put a little wide. <laughs> Hi, y'all. <laughs> I feel like any Texan listeners will like that one. Shrimp is a five dollar bill. Yep. Because I googled that. Yeah, that's about it. That's what I know. Yeah, the twenty dollar bill is a tomato, and the uh, the fifty dollar yeah. bill is a pineapple. Yeah, it's yellow. I don't know what the ten dollar bill is. It's blue. That's, that's not really appealing. Blue food. It's something. Yeah, I googled this, so but I'm uh, I don't remember. Yeah, but I'm happy that you understand me with my perfect Swedish American accent. I understand perfectly. I mean, look, we can speak a little bit of Swedish if you would like. I, I know a few words. I know hey, hey door, Yorkie to Daniel. Is that close? Oh my God. You just shamed me. I, I like made so much fun of your language and you just <laughs> came prepared. This is so embarrassing. That was really good, actually. You even nailed like pronunciation. And, oh, great. Because it's a hard language to kind of, it's because you don't know, you don't have any reference to it. So it's it's kind of hard to, to get that right. But you really did. I'm really impressed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I had a, uh, a best friend who was Swedish uh, when we were about 12 to maybe 15, 12 to 16, something like that. Yeah. Um, so he taught me that and then a few other phrases. <laughs> Not very respectable ones. But that's the age to learn something. 12, 15. That's probably why you nailed the pronunciation and stuff. Or I'm experiencing as assumed to be 40-year-old, that it's harder and harder to learn your stuff. Not to depress the audience, but that's just how the cookie crumbles. No, it's true. You get a little bit older, things yeah. become a little bit more difficult and challenging. You forget more things. It's yeah, it's all part of it. That's why it's so fun to do stuff like this. Because, I mean, at this age, to find new friends, you know, I'm still, you know, old enough to remember a time when the internet wasn't like a thing. So this is such a... It still feels new to me to just call a bloke that you had a couple of really good conversations with on the web about Spurs stuff. And I mean, you and me pretty early started to DM each other and, you know, make fun of other people on the on that horrible side. And uh, <laughs> uh, and I started listening to your podcast and found it funny. And so I'm still kind of amazed that uh, like a Swede and Australian can sit and talk about their love for this random club in London. And like you even go back just like, you know, a couple of generations. Like if you two were telling my grandparents, like, hey, we just jump on the internet. Firstly, they'd be like, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> like, we jump on the internet. We talk. We're across the world. We've never met before. We have got no like previous history. Yeah. Uh, we talk a lot about this club and we decide to record a conversation and put that up for other people to listen to. They would just be like, what, what are you even saying? Like, what are you even talking about? That's why I kind of wanted this rambling start to be in the pod, because I kind of feel like, uh, and I hope you rec- you're recording this, because I can't record on my phone while I'm talking. Uh, I tried, I, I thought I could, but I'm guessing you're recording this. I'm recording this. This uh, is, yeah, I'm, re- I'm double recording. Yeah, because we can't lose this shit. I, mean, I this know. Is the good shit. <laughs> this is actually a podcast. When we get onto Spurs, I'm just going to cut the rest of that out. And that's just not going to make it on. <laughs> Probably, but it's still, I mean, um, this is kind of part of it, I think. 
uh, why we're in this, uh, why you love a club that it kind of, it kind of, it becomes life, it spreads out, it, it nourishes your life in different ways. Like this, this is just, I'd love to do this even if we didn't have Spurs, but I mean, I don't know how I'd find you, right? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wouldn't. No, that's, that's what it's nice. It's like, we talk about how to, like, toxic Twitter is and how there is just so many, you know, horrible uh, interactions that you end up having on there. Yeah. But then at the same time, it opens up opportunities for this. So it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it at the end of the day. It balances out, but yeah. then probably in the positive. I kind of describe it like it's it's like you're you're sitting around with a bunch of like-minded friends doing bits and just having a laugh. And then at the same laugh, I thought that was kind of an Australian laugh. Yeah, it's not bad. You flattened out the A, yeah. Right, right. And then, but at the same time, there's like the worst people in the world standing around you in a circle with megaphones screaming out their childhood traumas. That's kind of how I feel Twitter is. Yeah. So you, it's it, there's kind of a fun thing in the middle, but then there's so much BS around you. Uh, and this is one of the good things. Oh, yeah, definitely. So I kind of feel when you ask me on this part, uh, and I'm just heading straight into why we're actually talking, I kind of felt like part of this has to be me asking you stuff, right? Because we decided to do this before Andrew became our, became our coach. Yeah. But now that, that he is, and you're, you being Australian, I kind of feel like a lot of these questions has to come from my, from me to, uh, to, to kind of get your sense of what this means for Australian football, for you as an Aussie, for Australian Spurs fans. So, so let me get this started by asking that. How do you feel? How does Australia feel? How does Australian Spurs fans feel about this? Yeah, I think overall uh, there's a lot of positivity about Ange. And he's someone that, you know, if you're into football in this country, you've known about him for quite a while. He's been involved in, like, the national team, the youth national team setup. Um, he's won um, an A-League title. He's managed a couple of A-League teams and got them playing really nicely. So... He's definitely a name that you would know. Um, I think, though, in the last sort of few years, what can happen to certain players is we might even get some decent Australian players here, and then they end up going, they leave the A-League and they go off and play, say, somewhere in Asia is their most likely destination. Yeah. And then we don't really hear much from them again. Yeah. So I think when, when Ange went off to Japan and started coaching um, the Marinos over there, but there was maybe a feeling of like, okay, great. You know, he's doing well and yeah. he's played some really nice football in the A-League, like the, the, the best sort of football the A-League's probably ever seen. Yeah. Um, and all right, wish him well in Japan. And maybe I don't know if we expected to hear much else about him. Like he'd be the sort of person who'd pop up again in 15 years and it's like, oh, he's living in Japan now. And, you know, there's a little Vice documentary on him or something like that. Yeah. I think when he, he won the sort of title there and then made his way to Celtic, people started taking him uh like i wouldn't say a bit more seriously but just thinking like oh okay maybe he's starting to climb up on that global scale a little bit yeah and really kind of like you know getting behind him a little bit that way so now the fact that he's in the premier league you have all of the uh like all of the the tv stations here on their like nightly um news sort of panel programs that they have yeah they now have an interest in this story but they never usually do. They don't give a shit about football because here it's all about AFL. Yeah, because that that was going to be my my full up question. Like, is football like a big sport over there? Because I guess you got one, two, three other sports that are probably bigger, right? Yeah, you've got uh, AFL is definitely 
the biggest, and then that's sort of closely followed by rugby. So yeah. rugby league is pretty big in say, um, like New South Wales and Queensland. So up mm. the sort of East coast. And then AFL is massive in Melbourne where we are. Um, and also kind of in South Australia, Western Australia, that sort of thing. So they're the two pretty big sports. And then you've also got cricket, which is kind of like the summertime sport that all of the, st- all of the States kind of tend to agree on. And then you have, uh, football, which is, you know, still commonly called soccer here to anyone who's not into the sport. And it has a massive, uh, number of people who take part in like grassroots level. And it's like the most played sport across the whole country for that reason. But then once you get up to the national leagues, our A-League is still not very good. It's not a great standard. And we've also had like some documented history of, uh, the AFL, uh, at times trying to bury, uh, football in this country. Yeah. Cause it has to be like a really big threat, right? It's the biggest sport in the world. And if it takes hold, who knows what happens? Yeah. They've been really, really protective. So it's anytime we've, we've gone, Hey, we want to apply for, uh, Commonwealth games, like Olympics, we want to apply for a world cup. We want to apply for this. The AFL's always said like, well, no, nah, you can't use our stadiums if we've got games on. Whereas any other yeah. country is like, yeah, we'd love to host it and go with that. Channel seven, I think it was that were broadcasting games in the late nineties. The AFL, they were showing all of their games and they got Channel 7 to buy the rights to the NSL, which was our national league at the time, and basically bury it and not show any games and maybe put one game on at 11 PM at night or something like that. So there have been different incidents where they have tried to kind of bury the sport. So it hasn't been very friendly in that sense. But if you are a fan, like where do you, what do you, what, what is the biggest leagues? Is it the national league? You watch the Asian League because you said that, or do, or do you or do you guys tend more to look at the Premier League or the European leagues? Because you can, and it kind of tracks back to what you said about Ange going to the Asian League and you guys not really hearing from him. I guess. Yeah, I think we follow a lot of the Premier League is still by far the biggest. Like, so Australia, yeah. there's so many, um, so many sort of you know second maybe third generation Australians. So. A lot of people have yeah. had, uh, at best, maybe their grandparents sort of moving out here. Um, and so therefore there is quite a heavy, uh, especially European and Asian influence. But I think when it comes to football, a European influence from a lot of Brits and there's a lot of Italians and Greeks, especially in Melbourne. Um, and so I think that there's always been interest in the Premier League. That's always been the most popular. So that's God, where this, it is. It's got to be like a sweet revenge thing. Like, and it's taken over the club and the whole of UK panicking sweet revenge for that whole shipping you guys off to die on a lonely Island. Right. Yeah. Finally, you, got one. you won. <laughs> Finally in the thing, we will no longer be called convicts because Ange Postacoglu has taken over Tottenham. <laughs> that's, that's our saving grace. But also the, their tears have to feel so sweet. Yeah. Well, we see, so I've seen so many, you know, comments online about, um, which I do still put down to like some sort of like xenophobia in a sense that because, you know, you've got now like, uh, like Andrew's like he was born in, um, I think he was born in Athens in Greece. And I think he yeah. moved to Australia when he was about five. So you've got a Greek Australian, um, who none, neither of those are considered like sexy football countries. No. And so I think it like it, there's just not very much respect for, for sort of managers from there. And what it does as well at the same time is it completely disregards like the journey you have to go through to make it as a manager. Like there's in Australia, in the A-League, which is our top league, there's, I think, 12 teams 
So it's like 12 head coach manager positions. And apart from that, I don't think there are any other professional jobs in the country. So you've got 12 positions plus the national team coach. So already um, it's pretty tough to even get into that level, let alone to then go overseas, work your way eventually to Europe and make it through that way. So yeah, it's it's quite a long journey. Yeah, and I mean, like I said this before, I think also it has to do how you view his career has probably a lot to do with your own life experience in your career. Like I come from like poor household. My mom's a nurse. I had to travel somewhere as a, in Sweden as a black man and kind of work myself up as a producer and kind of to get into those rooms where I had an opportunity. And if you have that kind of outside in perspective, you look at what Ant's done to, to, to bring himself into an industry that's really closed off. Um, and for him to be able to make a, a name of himself, despite, you know, uh, the low view and the elitism and not having contacts the same way, you know, people that used to play in the, these five leagues or are from Brazil or from, or, are from Spain or England. To me, that's more impressive. Um, oh yeah. And then when you add what you're talking about, it becomes even 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 more impressive. Like it's that it's that thing of if you and I mean there's, there's thousands and thousands of examples of my story in that way. And I that I kind of see that perspective uh, uh, coloring a lot of these uh, takes on whatever career he's had. Because it's so lazy to go, oh, we coached in the slower league, so it's not as good or hasn't proven himself. To me, that's more of a sense of it's a proof of, proof of concept because he's tested his system in all different levels, in all different sides of the planet, and he still got here. Uh, to me, that shows that what the system he worked within and whatever he's created uh, in terms of football philosophy, that's tested throughout a 20-year career. Oh, yeah. And I'd add to that, like, if he come up, if he came up in the it's 95, 96 somewhere, when he started coaching, like, that's pre-internet era. That means that, imagine the view we have now of Australian players and Australian coaches. Do you think he'd get a shot in European football in 95? No way. Was he supposed to break <laughs> through in 2001? Yeah. 2007? Exactly. I mean, yeah. no chance. So I think that's a lot of baloney. There's a lot of elitism, even in England towards, you know, uh, leagues in Sweden and in Europe. So, uh, yeah, uh, I'm with you. It's, uh, it's fear and, uh, um, yeah, just fear. And ignorance, basically. Oh, definitely. And I think, like, you know, even when Ange, like, signed for Celtic and he was saying, and, and sorry, when he was talking about when he signed for them, and he was saying, like, look, let's not be, let's not beat around the bush. When I first got here, I was considered a joke. <laughs> and and it's like, yeah. yeah, like, he's used to this treatment. Like, he's had this treatment before. And I'm glad that, like, it it doesn't seem to, like, really even, it's, it's water for duck's back. It doesn't even affect him at all. But yeah. it is this idea that it's like, you've got, you know, if you've got these, like, especially in England, in the Premier League, you've got like ex-Premier League players who get given a chance at just a top level club just after they've retired. And there's yeah. not very, there's, you know, there's, uh, it's usually quite positive around that. Like, oh yeah, club legend, he'll be great. Da, 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 da. 
And then you have this idea of like, you know, an underdog, like you said, you know, allude to of like coming from an outsider somewhere else. And it's almost like the first thing is like calling for failure or just not being, just not being impressed by the journey that they've gone on to get there. And just so many sort of like weird takes. And I think like what you said around like elitism is like really interesting. We can call it football privilege, like white privilege, but it's yeah. like UK football privilege. Oh, totally. Yeah. No, no, definitely. And it's like, people, yeah. you know, even I saw people like going in on his like hello video that he, that the club put out a day or two ago. Yeah. And it's like, I just see just an honest guy just sitting there, just giving his first, you know, mini tiny interview. But this kind of this links into what I'm I'm getting because I kind of spoil now. I'm I'm very positive, and you know I'm very positive about Ange. I I love him as a person. I love him as a coach. But but getting back to what I what my initial question, which was your reaction, because because now we've talked a little bit about how Australia might look at it, and I'm guessing they're really impressed now. He, he's at the highest level, but now you as an Australian Spurs fan. And I'm really interested in, in digging into this because as a Swedish Spurs fan, when Kulusevski came to Spurs, I was really happy, of course, but I was also really nervous mm-hmm. because all of a sudden I had more skin in the game. Like he represented my country and also I was so invested in him. I don't, I don't know, because UK fans can't really understand this because they have like tons of, or UK fans, uh, English fans have a ton, like they have a ton of English players in the league, but we get maybe one or two, and now you get a coach. Something happens, or at least it happened to me. So how do you feel about it? Yeah. Have you noticed this? Because I'm kind of noticing it with you now, people, you know, digging on his interview. Is that just your general annoyance with moaning Spurs fans, or do you feel now that's, it, it hurts even a little bit more. You're a little bit more vigilant when it's someone that's so close to uh, to you and where you come from. I think it's both of those things because I feel like the moaning Spurs fans angle is just the most tired angle in, I don't want to say in the whole world of sport because I don't follow every single sport, but I'm just so tired of yeah. like the constant moaning on any, like you can have like, oh, here's a picture of uh, Richarlison smiling at training. And then it's just like, wow, and then the moans just kick off about unrelated topics. Yeah. So I think that was already in place before this. But then when, yeah, there is like an element of, I think, being an Australian, being a Spurs fan, where you see someone make it. Um, and like to, to us in this instance, Ange getting appointed is making it. Yeah, of course it is. Right? Ange doesn't have to win a league. Of course. He doesn't have to win anything. Like, I don't care. Like, it's like yeah. he's made it by just getting into this position. And so I think I do feel that when you get people like really pushing back on that, um, there definitely would be some extra like defensiveness where I'm just sitting here thinking like, Hey, just shut the hell up. Just like, let us have our moment yeah. and enjoy this for once. Cause this never happens to anyone from our country. Yeah. I felt it with Kulisewski and just to make us sound cooler, let's call it being protective rather than defensive. Yeah. 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 Cause it just, you just, because I remember when he came in and it was, you know, he doesn't even get starting Juventus. Who is this guy? He looks slow and all that stuff. And then, you know, I was kind of confident and, of course, protective and started posting stats and, you know, making that whole thing of arguing for him. But I was also nervous because I kind of felt like if this, if it fucks up, it's going to hurt. 
You see what I'm saying? Or if this becomes, you know, a period of him becoming, you know, Dyer or Lucas, it's going to be really um, tough for me to follow the team in the way I do today, like uh, consuming Twitter and stuff like that. Yeah. So I get it. Yeah. I, I think it's like, I, 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 for some reason, I don't feel that like, I don't feel any worry about Ange in that sense. Like I actually, for some, and I don't know why, but like, I do really, really feel like this is going to be a really, really good appointment. Like I can't see this going in the direction that he becomes a complete embarrassment to the history of the club. And he's just like, cause he's, he's been in the game for long enough. <laughs> that, that will be, that, that will be funny though. That would be fun. Like I would objectively have a step back and look at that. That would be funny, but that would probably like hurt a little bit because it's like, oh, of course. It all right, Australian managers are not getting a look in again for a long, long time if that, something like that happens. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, if that like I, I honestly like I feel really, really confident in him, and yeah, it would take a lot. But again, his 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 track record helps. Like we know him. There's so much material. Um, that you can look at, like just him as a personality, him as a coach. So you know it's not going to be a disaster. But also because his philosophy, if it fails, it's going to be, and I mean, failing at this club, uh, I don't know if you can fail more than we've done the last couple of years. That also helps in some extent. And failing while trying to be positive and playing fun football uh, is also kind of, uh, also protects him in some ways. Yeah. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And I think as well, like, if the position of the club, so if we were, let's say we finished second or third last season, and for them, whatever reason, the manager left and blah, blah, blah. And then it looked like we were kind of on course on the way up to maybe be challenging next year, something like that. Yeah. Then I think I probably would feel slightly more nervous because yeah, yeah. that would be, all right, we're going in a pretty, pretty positive up, upwards trajectory and he could very easily bring us down a couple of places and that wouldn't be good. But I feel like from where we are now, we're like in a really good sort of like reset spot. And yeah. ultimately, if if he doesn't do well, I honestly think that so many of the fans are just going to pile in on Daniel Levy anyway. So yeah, yeah. I feel like he's kind of safe in that, in that regard. And I have to say like, so just again, to take a step back, why I think he's, because I'm with you, I think he's going to succeed. And this is why. Uh, first and foremost, I think taking this job at this particular moment it's it's two jobs basically it's a communication job like a leadership job and it's a coaching job mm, yeah definitely so so on the coaching job you know i feel comfortable with his philosophy his tactics his experience his coaching you know skill um his ability to incorporate the academy and young players and coaching them and i feel comfortable with him being smart enough to adjust to this new level in terms of pressing and all these stuff that people might be worried about. So I feel safe with him in that regard. But when we, after we failed with Poch, we failed with um, Nagelsmann, I think there was a couple of coaches where I felt kind of comfortable with that aspect of their ability. Slot, company, Zerbi, and Enrique, like the coaching aspect of those, even Guardiola, what's his name? Um, Argentinian coach, Galardo. Ah, oh, Galardo, yeah. I, I, I thought I, all those coaches had the right, right philosophy. I thought Amarim, too, was in there. 
had the right philosophy. I thought they were good enough coaches to be able to do something that represented where we wanted to go with the coaching. But then you have to put the context of where are the where where are we right now? And the, this club is down in the rings when it comes to culture, when it comes to communication, when it comes to spirit, when it comes to fan sentiment. So whoever comes in was going to be working towards the grain. It was going to have pretty little time before fans started to complain because they're all underwhelming in terms of names. Like they're not big experienced names like Parch and, and, and Augustman. And so you have to look at who can handle that, like who can communicate and lead throughout, you know, the tumultuous period. And to me, Andrew was the, the obvious um, pick when you look at that aspect. He's got the communication skills, the charisma, the leadership experience, the calmness to be able to withstand a bad period. I'm not worried about the good period. I'm, I'm worried about what happens during the bad period. And look at that Nuno, Conte, and Jose. One of their biggest flaws was that when things went bad, they were awful communicators. Like, they made it worse than every presser. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they, they couldn't turn around. They couldn't take hold of the culture and the communications within, inside and outside the club. They couldn't change the culture. But I think, and you can. Definitely. I, I agree. And, and that... And that was why I had him as a favorite over Slot. Like, Slot's coached, what, three years, four years? 2019, he started. He's a good coach, but, you know, and he can speak English well and stuff like that, which I think, which I don't generally think is an important thing. I didn't mind with Conte and, and, and Joseph, uh, Conte in particular, that much. But right now, it's really important. And... But I don't think he had the gravitas and the smarts to know what to say and when to say it. Yeah, and, and that was that's why I'm excited about um, Ange. Yeah, and look, I think that Ange will like if he makes mistakes, he'll he will claim responsibility for that. And like I've wanted, I think for so long now, just a coach who kind of feels like they are one of us and they're not doing us a favor and all those sorts of things. And yeah. just the way that Ange speaks whenever he gets questioned about anything. Uh, like in numerous Celtic interviews, like I think he's very protective of his players, which I really, really like. He doesn't put, put them out to dry. And he's also protective of them being shown respect mm-hmm. as well. Like, I think there's that clip where someone asks, asks him some question about like, Hey, but something's something like about the Japanese boys you've brought in or something like that. Yeah, exactly. We brought in a couple of Japanese, but like what do you like about the Japanese players? Something like that. And then he's like, hang on. And then he's like, he's kind of broken them down to their individual, like individual quality. He's like, call them by their name, like do this, like don't just group them in like that. So I think even just small things where I, I've I've really wanted for so long for a manager just to not start turning on players. And like, you know, we've had like Ndombele, like <laughs> hang out, hung out to dry. Yeah. Like Conte with so many different players. Like Basuma comes in and He's, he's like, no, nah, he's, he's really struggling to understand my setup, yeah. um, my system and, and what's required of him and all this sort of stuff. And like, same with what happened to Delhi, like as, as well. So I think I, I just want a manager who is going to kind of like yeah. protect us a bit from the media when they start 
asking questions and just make us feel like we are aligned with them and that they are in the trenches with us as well. It's that, it's that mix between being smart and being honest. Like you, you brought it up that example of him saying I was a joke uh, when I came to Scotland. That's just brutal honesty. That's just like addressing the elephant in the room in a way that gets fans and people like on board immediately. Because it's not a politician's answer. It's a real person's answer. Yeah. Uh, and that's what we need, especially with this kind of club where we don't really have any, for good or for bad, and I think it's for bad. I mean, the culture experts is pretty awful. Like the, the sporting structure. And I think, you know, other countries and other sports talk about sporting culture more than for some reason they do in football. Like, you know, uh, franchise culture, in, you know, in NBA or... NFL, this thing of cultivating a winning culture where, you know, accountability, communication, uh, having standards, stuff like that is something we really don't have within the structure of Spurs, probably because we haven't had a long-term uh, long DOF for people within the footballing structure that can build that up. And so it's, it's always fallen on the coach. So when we have a strong leader in that sense as like Poch for multiple years we have a good, good culture when we jump between Nuno, Jose, whatever it is, 18 months, 18 months we don't have a culture so there are no with the standards within the club uh, and that's what kind of Conte uh, complained about and it's a dual sword because it's partly his, partially his responsibility but it's also it's also right in that should exist within the club, like this thing where if you're not good enough or uh, if you're not, if you don't show up to games or if you don't fight for the badge or the fact that badge means something, that that culture and love for, you know, putting something on the pitch every week that is your best. We don't have that. And so for good and for bad, the new coach that comes in is going to have to, with Man, with this new version of director of football, is going to have to build that up again. And I feel he, he is particularly uh, smart with understanding how important that is. And I think um, to so many points in there, like I, I feel like we probably got a little bit lucky with Poch in certain ways and that Poch might have oh, leapfrogged aspects of our development as a club, which maybe then led to say the club focusing on, uh, you know, all right, cool. Let, we're now going to focus on redeveloping the stadium. We're going to focus on these other commercial deals. We're going to focus on this, that, and everything else. And then we hadn't sort of had that for long enough of a period to sort of be removed from just one manager. So like when you said we've got Poch in there yeah. and everything was great, cool. But then Poch leaves and because that hasn't been established over a long, long, long time, um, the next couple of managers we have, uh, who are used to already having that in at the clubs that they sort of go to, um, it it kind of falls falls apart a little bit. So I really kind of think that's why I see, yeah, I think to me that stuff is maybe almost more important than anything else. And I really feel that, like I think you said as well, like Ange is, has kind of been the standout candidate in a number of those sort of aspects. Yeah, And you just see of combined with how he handled himself in all these press interviews and everything, but then also the clips you see of him behind closed doors and on the training pitch, giving team talks, things like that. Like he can go both ways. Like he can be that really sort of like, you know, warm, like fatherly figure who is going to be protective of his players. 
But then if they're not sort of putting in, like he is going to get stuck into them as well. And, you know, he's going to motivate them through that way. And he has had experience of doing this through, you know, youth setups here in Australia uh, and then in multiple teams here and then a number of different countries where he's been able to do that. So I think that's why, to me, that stands out as the most important thing that we kind of need as a coach right now. And like if Andrew's legacy on Spurs at the end of the day, and I might get vilified for some people for saying this, but if his <laughs> legacy was to be able to improve that culture and get things in place that maybe help us with that long-term more than say winning something, um, I think that would still be considered a good, like by his standards, I think that would be considered a good um, tenure, and also I think like what you said now, like I focused on what you when you said right now, because I think what people underestimate or maybe we forget is that context and expectations change with every era. So when Posh came in, as you said, because we were not a mid-table team, but you know a team that finished between five and ten, you know expectations were pretty low. So when he, you know exceeded our expectations with basically a pretty slim budget. We And we grew both outside the, the pitch with the new stadium, new expectations because, you know, finished third and second and Champions Leagues. Expectations rise. And all of a sudden, all those players, you know, come into their prime when he leave. And now expectations are, you know, we have to win. We should challenge for the league or at least be cemented in the top four and the expectations are you know um we should be in the champions league and at least be in knockout phases and whatever when when those expectations were the reality of the club going for someone like conte and jose made sense to me you know you have john toby Luis, kane son erickson at the beginning of Jose in their prime. So winning now is the expectation. And while, you know, it's easy to look at what's happened now and go, you know, that's not our club, that's not our philosophy, you know, I kind of got, and I still kind of get why we did, why, why Levy made those decisions. He just didn't back them up and so they failed. Like he didn't, he, under, he underestimated how much he would need to kind of keep spending to grow, to, to, you know, uh, fulfill that promise of giving all these great players uh, that trophy. But now, you know, these last two, three years, when we've steadily gone down, you know, we, and lost a lot of those players, like at least half or maybe 80% of those players won't be here next season. It's basically going to be Son and Kane. Now, all of a sudden, the makeup of the, of the club, the uh, makeup of the squad is different. Like our best players are young. And Kane might be leaving. Son is 30, going to be 31. We're in like a new cycle. And so expectations are much lower. And so the job is different. And just going back to what you said about him, and I kind of alluded to it, I think even if his era is just about, you know, uh, getting joy back into the club and us playing the right type of football and us getting younger, and shipping away, you know, uh, and starting to structure the the makeup of the squad in a way that suits another type of football. We're going to be better positioned in two years or three years uh, or one year even uh, than we are today. And so to me, 
I if he if he survives his first year, I think he succeeded. Yeah. What are your expectations? Of Edge in that sense? Yeah. Yeah. Like I I think he'll um I think he'll be here for a while. Like I would be very surprised if Ange goes quickly because I also feel like if you were at that real like hot headed phase where you just like wanted success immediately, um, you wanted this, that, anything else, I don't think they would have appointed Ange. So when people are saying like, oh, he'll be gone in six months, he'll be gone by Christmas and all, all this sort of stuff. It's, uh, it has to be horrific. That to happen. Yeah, it has like, to be. It has more to be toxic. obvious that he's out of his depth. <laughs> it's it can't. There's, there'll be no other reason. Like, I'm expecting us to maybe the first half of the season, like, definitely struggle in games because we've be, we've had yeah. basically well, since Poch, like what, like three years, four, however long it actually is now, of managers who did not really want the football that much. So to go from that to players who have had this kind of drilled into them for such a long time. Like, yes, some might sort of thrive having a bit more freedom and having the ball again and all that sort of stuff. But it will take a while to really adjust to that, start clicking, get new players in, all that sort of stuff. So I honestly think that, like, the first half of the season, results could kind of be all over the place. Yeah. And I don't see that as a bad thing at all. I would actually kind of prefer that rather than, say, Ange coming in, changing up his philosophy and playing it safe. And by all accounts, it's like he does not, change his philosophy and play it safe with things for anyone. Yeah. He believes in it so much. So I would much rather us go through that page place where we're having painful results, but there will be elements of the games, which will be more enjoyable. Yeah. Give us all the pain immediately. That's what I say. Yeah. Give us all the pain now. Like if we finish eighth again, but our squad is much younger, much slimmer. Uh, we're playing like with it, in a way where you can see it ending up, where you can see a finish line that seems fun, and I'm all on board, even if it means us losing games. Because that's, that's the goal for me this year. Yeah, like, I just want to be able to sit down and enjoy watching games for a while. So And, and like, honestly, that could include us losing games. But if we're just playing a little bit more assertively, um, again, which we're, we're trying to do things with the ball, we're trying to be a little bit more creative, then I, I'm I'm happy with that. Like <laughs> that's just what I want. I, it, games became such a chore, especially towards the end of this season, where it was just like, oh, the game's on this Saturday. I guess I guess I'll watch it. And then you'd watch it, get like half an hour in, and there's some nice glimpses, but then overall you're still just like, ah, oh, this is this is just not a fun way to spend a couple of hours. Yeah, and also it's it's not going anywhere because when it was only about the results, I was all in. Um, because I kind of, I, as I said, I, I understood the idea, even if I didn't uh, agree and uh, with the with the football. Like it's not my favorite type of football. It's also not my like. I understood what was wrong. Like the execution of Conte just didn't work because we didn't have the players. Like we don't have the players for top four, in my opinion. Like we haven't had that for since Porch. Yeah. And when we've gotten that uh, top four spot, it's been, uh, which is, you know, a first year of Conte, basically. And it's been us overachieving, in my opinion. So I've always felt like th these last couple of years that we have kind of been lucky not to, you know, like this year, like we conceded up to 60, I think 59 goals. And 
and scored like something 50 plus and came i think scored 40 percent of our goals so if kane wasn't there and we had another you know uh, more normal uh, uh, striker who scored maybe 50 15 20 we would have finished around 10th to, to 20th like somewhere close to relegation that shows you how Basically, we were lucky even now this season. So this is time. This has been a long time coming to me. But, but just a question on, on on that: what we can expect at the start of the season? You followed him as more than I have these last couple of years. Like, how long does it take? Like, if he gets the reins and really gets to do it his way, because that's sense i'm getting like when he's really succeeded at like in japan and, and, and celtics it's taken time but he's gotten a lot of freedom to buy and sell players like what are your estimations of like if he gets back in the right way how long do you think it's going to take before we start seeing it clicking um i think it could honestly take up to a full season um yeah. because i i also look at it in the sense of comparing like the league like there's now like the Premier League is ridiculous in terms yeah. of the spending <laughs> and all this and like Newcastle and like Newcastle's new like shirt sponsor, which is like a government made up company again, 25 <laughs> millisees. Like Newcastle are now kicking into gear with with whatever ways that they can start getting around financial fair play and doing that. So you've already kind of got like Man City, Newcastle, like Chelsea, I would expect to bounce back to some extent against with Poch. I don't know if they would like how high he can actually take them because I also feel like looking at them, they are a club that is in, is in massive mess as well. And there's a lot of issues they've got to sort out and they've got like a ridiculously big squad and all that, all that sort of stuff. But like there are, there's so much money being thrown around by all these, like, like Arsenal has spent so much money as well. And so it's almost like the top four or five spots are almost I don't want to say completely sealed, but they're teams that are just going to sort of keep spending quite a lot of money. So we're kind of talking now of like, you know, is like finishing seventh, for example, is not that bad uh, given what you're actually up against in the league. Yeah. So I don't think we'll finish worse than what we've done this year. Um, I would expect yeah. us to sort of finish there or thereabouts or even a bit higher, but yeah. I think there's also still so many variables. Like, Poch, it, it could kind of go either way. We're going to be able to get Brighton there. Run for the money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and see, you never know with Brighton as well. Like, they could they could get into next season. Yeah, they, they're selling a bunch of players. Yeah. But, you know, as you say, we have Aston Villa, Brighton, uh, you know, Liverpool, uh, Manchester United, City, Chelsea, Arsenal. It's like 6-7 teams i don't know if i forgot someone newcastle newcastle it's it's ridiculous like it is actually ridiculous like the premier league it's just completely out of control and yeah so i think that's why when if we're talking about expectations i'm all sort of looking at like how how we're playing in games and um it doesn't look like this stylistically we're making steps in the right direction rather than say getting focused on do we win a cup this year do we win this what position do we finish those sort of things like, I honestly think, like, it's going to be really, really tough for us to win a title with any manager in the next 
five, ten years, to be completely honest. <laughs> At least a couple of years. Yeah. But so let me ask you a couple more. You know, let's get down to the nuts and bolt, uh, bolts. That's how you say that. Yeah. Um. So, academy. Like one of the big things I will be looking for is two things: selling players and youth. From your experience, how? What are? Uh, and you know how? What's his focus when it comes to youth? Uh, what's his focus when it comes to like to the to the squad? What kind of players do, does he want? Like, tell me a little bit from your experience. I mean, I have my view from research, but I'm guessing you might have more intimate knowledge when it comes to this. Yeah. Well, it's like I'm by no means an expert in sort of all his like transfer dealings and, and all those sorts of things. But when you have someone who comes from a background of working with the national team on a youth team level for a quite a long time yeah, and then coaching in the A-League. So the A-League is a salary capped league. Yeah, it's okay. very, very, very different. And the salary caps we're talking about, I think it's like it's two to three million per team. So okay. a majority of our first team squad at Spurs, one player is on more than a whole team in the A-League. Yeah. So what does that mean? What, what does that mean in reality? Like, I think it means in reality that it's like, you're not used to bringing in big, expensive superstar players. Okay. You're used to having to bring through some younger players um, because yeah. as part of that, you have to develop younger players. Like you just, there's nowhere yeah. else for you to go. Um, you're also having to try and look for players who you think maybe are massively undervalued mm. and you might be able to get them for, you know, a very, very, very cheap amount and get them to do roles for you. So like even players he's brought in at Celtic, like they haven't been huge, massive signings, but he's been able to sort of like elevate them coming through. So when we look at sort of edge and we're talking about, say, bringing in youth players and all that. Like, I don't see that as like, it's an excuse for us not to go out and buy superstars. Cause overall, I think the whole transfer market is just like a complete mess. And it's just ridiculous now to me that a half decent player is like getting between like 50 and a hundred mil, yeah. depending on who's buying and selling. So I honestly think that he'll do a better job. So, so do you think like, cause, cause he talks a lot about being brave and wanting his players to be brave and now he's got this much bigger job with much more pressure do you think he will be brave enough to give more academy players even like first team minutes like divine scarlet like i might think they need loans or stuff but i don't know what's going to happen do you think he will be more of a or spence or sar do you think he like, what do you think his attitude is going to be when it comes to, you know, judging risk versus reward and, and you know, this brief he's gotten? Because obviously he's also got the job because, like, part of the job description for him specifically is to bring through more academy players. Is he brave like that? Will he, or do you think he, he'll crumble or have to adjust to this level? Like, in general, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I would say that he, whether it's, conscious or subconscious that he would look uh, at himself and he'd take his own kind of experiences. So he's always come through as an underdog in situations. He's come into leagues where he has been expected. Uh, he's been often, you know, a surprise to be appointed. So in that sense, it is the equivalent of a young player or a very, very cheap player coming in and overperforming. So I honestly think that he would be bold with players that he can see potential in because he's also been in this game for so long um, that 
he has been able to see, he's been able to experience for like, you know, a quarter of a century looking at players, seeing if they can make it, probably pushing some through that don't, and then doing that again and again and again and refining his eye for, and also just his like sense of like, when he speaks to the player, like how do they respond to him? Like he's had so much more experience than say a manager who's come in and done this for one or two years. Um, of that man management level, which I think we honestly always kind of think of it as like, well, can a man management, can they handle all the big egos in the squad? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, it also goes down to the youth players. Like, how can you handle those youth players and get them to buy into your system, get them to buy into you? And are you able to actually motivate them and lift their performance as well, rather than just cast them aside as not being good enough, purely based on like looking at them from just a technical perspective? So... I think that he would look at it. But, but exactly. Because I, and I just want to dig into that, what you just said, because I feel like he, his attitude, and correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like his attitude is more players need effort is more important than talent. Like there's a general sense I get that because his system is so demanding, like in, in sense of running, pressing, doing, do, being brave. Like I saw an interview where he talked about experienced players while being good can be more uh, traumatized by <laughs> experience, basically not being as brave because they know like in, in passing back to the goalie or taking risk on risks on the ball, whilst younger players, you know, being blessed by ignorance sometimes are brave. And I thought that was really interesting uh, input. Oh yeah. Like I, I honestly feel like a player I think is going to have a much better season next year is Richarlison. Yeah. And, because I think just mentality wise, it's like, I can, I can see him as being the sort of perfect player mentality wise for Postacoglu. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you said, where is he going to play him? I'm like, he could play him as more in that number nine role at times where that is kind of running in behind. Yeah. He could also play him out of the way. I don't really know exactly where, but mentality wise, I see someone like that who I think is going to have a much, much better season with someone like Postacoglu because like Richarlison will run through a brick wall for, for, yeah. for the manager, especially if Richarlison feels that his manager backs him. And I think that's what's so important as well. When you feel you've got the manager, like the manager's got your back, that's when I think you're really, really going to go all out for you. So I, I think that I, this is why I, I'm, I, I think I'm feeling so positive about it because there are probably a few players in our squad and in our youth system who could kind of be like sleeper hits in a way where yeah. we might have written them off, that we might not even really know too much about them yet, but someone like Ange will go in there, see something in them, and he won't be afraid of giving them a chance of bringing them into the squad. That's what I'm hoping for, like him being brave with risks, like testing stuff, like testing players, um, believing in himself. Like it's always going to be, like that's also like him being older. I like that because I feel like... Uh, it affords him more bravery in the sense that believing in himself, like not getting scared of the moment and starting to know, you know, I feel like, and you can tell me like when he was in the youth system or like he's had a couple of experiences when I read interviews where he's um, like early in his interview, in his career, where he's kind of compromised, where and listen more and being more risk averse. And it's it be it failing or him being fired and him, you know, explicitly saying, "Oh, I'm not doing that again. 
like for good and for bad, I'm doing it my way. And I'm going to believe in what I'm trying to do. And so I'm hoping this step, like when I'm talking about uh, fears with him stepping up, my fears are not, oh, his pressing system is going to be too naive for this level. My fear is more like him being pressured to care more about result, like short-term results than being brave and, you know, having that long-term goal um, of, you know, playing the right way in the forefront. If you get, if you catch what I mean, I'm rambling a bit, but you know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. No, no, no. I, I know what you mean. And I think that you, like you mentioned his age in there too. And I think you get to that age and like, you don't give a shit <laughs> anymore. Yeah. Like he's soon to be 60. What, what? Like, what's he got to lose? Like, and also if yeah. you're that age and you're playing the type of football that he is, which is a lot more progressive than a number of managers, 10, 20 years younger than him. That's why it's like, I don't have, I don't have concerns in that because it's like, he's obviously like to, to be that experience and then be like, no, this is the way I'm playing. I've, I've evolved from how I played when I, from how I set my teams up when they were, when I was younger and maybe I was more risk averse back then compared to now. Like, I just see that as just like way more confident than if you say, put even say someone like Mason. Yeah. Uh, and I know Mason was never seriously in contention, right? But I'm just looking at the other side of yeah, someone yeah. who's really still fresh to management. Like Mason, a few games go poorly. Tactics are changing. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, tactics yeah. are changing pretty quickly. Yeah. But also like, because why I'm not worried about the, you know, the, the more, you know, pragmatic tactical pressing being up to 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 speed on you know what's the latest you know in football tactics i mean what a lot of people i think have missed is the reason why he hasn't you know why he keep changing his coaching staff and he's and i've heard him say this in interviews is because he has to keep uh updating his tactics like if he sticks with the same people around him uh he's gonna fall behind and him just being smart enough to realize that uh, just gives me so much confidence. Oh, totally. You're 100% right. Because he has updated. He's kept updating his, his tactics. He didn't play the same way in in before, uh, before Japan than he did before. Like, he had the same philosophy, like the fundamentals, but he updated with the inverted fullbacks. And, you know, he's kept updating uh, to what's, you know, the new shit. Totally. And that's why it's like, I think you compared to say, uh, like, you know, like Conte, like for the most part, he's got like Stellini, he's got like his old mates around him who he just goes, they follow him around club to club to club. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time, if something doesn't work out, it becomes like, it's the club's fault, the player's fault, not us. Great. Let's move on to the next gig. Yeah. Let's do that. So yeah, I really like that he's not massively wedded to having, you know, this person must be my assistant. This person must be my first team coach that I take every single place that I go. Because also I think that like you, there's something to be said for you go to a new place, you go to, especially a new country, a new league, there might be someone there local who could teach you something as well. So to just come in and clear out all their stuff and just bring in all of your guys that haven't been there before, uh, to me as well, it's like, it's a pretty kind of egotistical sort of thing. To, to just be like, yeah, no, nah, we know everything. Don't worry. Uh, it's like you're taking over a company and you go, get rid of all the stuff. We're bringing in all our people and we'll show them how it's done here. And it's like, that is that how it works? <laughs> does that ever work really well? I don't think it ever does. I don't think either. But on that, because you, you mentioned Richardson having, you know, a comeback year. 
like when you look at this squad, who do you think stays and who do you think goes? What are your thoughts? Uh, I think there'll be some players where, who will be a little bit up in the air, but some who also might go, say, the end of this season. So someone like, say, like Hoybier and Skip, for example, I like both of them, and I think that they both offer something. Now, whether they offer something in Andrew's system is another question, but also I don't think they're not going to be first to be shipped out uh, we could definitely have them playing some minutes for us for another season. So let's establish the tactics then, though, because obviously I think most of most people have probably know this by now. But it's a four-three-three. Uh, it's a possession base. It's high pressing. It's you know you have to have technically good players and and you know inverted fullbacks, uh, central CBs who are really quick, strong, good on the ball. The goalie is quick, strong, good on the ball. Uh, quick, I don't know, but, you know, quick between the... Uh, quick and go. And maybe uh, mentally quick. Two eights, a six, uh, who's really good, press resistant and good on the ball. Eights are more, you know, uh, have to be good going forward and good on the ball, but have to... One of them, at least, have to have something defensive about them. Two wingers who... who Start really wide, create you know chances one v one, and then the striker. Or I think, and you correct me if I'm wrong again here. He's played more of false nines, like really hard working, grifting, pressing uh, nine. My, so that's the system. Yeah, my understanding with his striker is that like when he was at Melbourne Victory, um, he was definitely playing false nine then. Yeah, and Celtics. Too? He has also played with a player running in behind it, which is what I think is yeah. what Kyogo does at Celtic. Um, yeah. So that's where, because I've heard like, you know, other, like, for example, like Extra Inch, like who've, uh, you know, they've analyzed it more from like that technical sort of analytics perspective where they know a lot more about, uh, like Nathan A. Clark knows a lot about that, that stuff than I do. And suggesting in the sense of like, you know, a player like Son is kind of almost the perfect number nine for someone like Ange. In, in terms yeah. of how he's been playing recently. Um, and then also, yeah, like Richarlison could also play in that sort of role. But I think there's a there's probably quite a lot of squad which is up in the air. And I really would would feel that there's it's probably going to depend on who's coming in with offers for a number of these players. But the ones that I'd say would be safe, I feel like Forster is actually going to be safe. Like, I don't think we need to get another backup. I think he'll be pretty safe. I agree. I think Romero is not going to go anywhere. You do your first, you, you do your list first and I'll, yeah, cool. I'll do mine. I think Romero is not going anywhere. I think Poro not going anywhere. Uh, your doggy is just coming in. So he's, he's not going to go anywhere. The rest of the defenders, like I honestly think that Ben Davies will stay and he could be a player that just is a really solid squad player to have. Yeah. So I guess from the defenders, like Perisic gone, um, Sanchez gone, Dyer gone. These are all ones that I think would the club would be and Andrew would be quite happy to let go. Yeah. Um, whether or not they all go, I don't know. Um, Tanganga's one, which could go both ways, but I feel like if he's he hasn't really sort of broken through by now, I feel like that's someone to sell. Yeah. Um, it'd be interesting to see what happens with Spence. Um, but like someone like Poro to me, I think is like. Is this guy more of a winger than a, than a, than a wingback? Like, I'd like to see him there. I think midfielders, um, like given that Bentonker is still going to be injured for a, for a while, I honestly think that we 
we might see one go, but I, again, it would just be if someone comes in with a, a decent offer for like a skip or Hoibier or something like that. And then in terms of forwards, I think we're kind of like a little bit slim, slim. Like I don't see Son Kane, Richarlison going. I mean, Lucas is already gone, which I'm, I'm, I'm happy about. So I'm sure I'm missing players. Oh, then you've got all the players coming back. Yeah, exactly. Like Reggion, Lucelso, and Dombele, Winks. Like seven players coming back. I think all of those players will go. Like I've I've heard some people yeah. saying, you know, hey, and Dombele actually fits a pretty good profile for what Ange wants in a certain player. But yeah, I honestly think and is kind of done <laughs> at Spurs. So I would be very surprised if if he came back in the fold. But who knows? Like it, it, it could be, I think there are so many players that could end up leaving um, that it's really, really hard to actually predict at this stage. I'm wondering, like, first and foremost, I, I agree with basically every single player you just mentioned. And just to dig into it, I think like Romero is uh, like in goal. Uh, Forrester is a good backup, I feel. And why give yourself more to do than you need to? Yeah. Like we, we're going to get a first first team starting uh, keeper. And then when you when you talk about that back line, I, I agree with you. I think Tanganga is gone. He needs to play. He doesn't fit this fit as, to me at least, uh, as a central defender under Ange. Um, I think I want Dyer to leave. I think Dyer would stay. Uh, I want Lengle to leave. I think Lengle might stay. Uh, I think we'll, I mean, we're desperate for another left center back who can actually start. Sanchez needs to go. And I think he will leave. I think Cesc, Regilon, Perisic will go. I think um, Udogo will stay. Davis will stay. Emerson will stay. Spence will go alone. Poro will stay. Emerson, I forgot Emerson. I, I, I like Emerson. I think Emerson will stay too. And I agree with you on Cesc as well. Yeah. And, and with, um, and with the inverted fullbacks thing, it's like, so Poro can, I think Poro and Udogo can play inverted fullbacks, but probably not at the same time. So, and, and this is where we start to get into not knowing if Andrew will adjust, because I think he can adjust, but I don't know if he will adjust when it comes to playing a sole pivot or two pivots or two inverted fullbacks will just play one inverted fullbacks and play lopsided. Meaning, I think Poro can, can play as if Davis plays on the other side. Yeah, I agree. And they form like a back three in position. And then you have like six and Poro playing out wide. And I think like uh, Udogo is pretty suited to play inverted fullback and young enough to learn the position. And so when he plays Emerson, it's a pretty good a defensive option who could either go in and play inverted or stay back and, and form that three. And when we come to this to the midfielders, I feel like I think Skip and Hoiberg will stay, but I think both of them will not be starting players. Uh, the thing with the when you look at our midfield and look at the players coming back, you look at Lucelso Wings and Domble together with Hoiberg Skip. Sar and Bisuma, you start to have to kind of divide them up in a way that we didn't need to do under Conte and even under Joseph, where I think Skip, who's a six, basically play, 
playing, you know, uh, as the pivot. I don't think it's good enough on the ball, press resistant on the ball enough to play that role. Uh, I think Bissouma is. I think Bentancur can do that job in a, in a pinch. I don't think Hoiberg can do it. And so we have Bissouma there. And I do think if we can sell Skip or loan Skip, we should get someone in there to be more of a suitable backup rotation player with um, with Bissouma. I think Hoiberg, for that, for that eight role that's defensive, and I like to liken this midfield to Arsenal's midfield because it's it's the clearest kind of comparison where they have party as the lone pivot, you have Odegaard as the advanced eight, basically a 10, but an eight, who, a 10 that defends more. And then they have Zaka as this defensive, both sides of the ball, midfielder, eight, basically. And I think Hoiberg and Bentancourt are best suited for that role. And I think... And Don Belendo Celso, if you look at their profiles, could do that 10 role. And I think Winks can do that sixth role. Now, I don't think Winks will stay. I don't think he's, I think he wants to play and he won't be starting at Spurs. And I don't think Lucelso's body can handle the Premier League and he's got buyers. When it comes to Ndombele, him staying as kind of a rotation bench player for that role, that's why, because he fits, like he's creative. He can play between the lines. He can create in the final third. But then you come to the pressing for 90 minutes, that that work rate you have to have on the age, and you start to look at, uh, we need someone else there. That's where you look at Madison and stuff like that, bringing someone else. And then there's Saar. And this is where I kind of asked you earlier, where I think Saar should be getting an opportunity uh, to play. And the thing with him is, he could probably play all three of those roles. Like, I don't know where and season, because I think it's different for different coaches. Uh, he's probably most suited for that box-to-box and uh, a little bit defensive, a little bit attacking role. And then when it comes to forwards, I mean, this is where it starts to get, you know, where I start to get a little bit, not confused, but I think it's fascinating because when you look at how Ernst plays, you know, those wingers need to be really good one we one in creating wide. And both Son and Kulisevsky like to play a little bit more narrow from what I've, when I look at them. And I don't know if Son really has that one-to-one creative ability and speed anymore. I do think Kulisevsky could do that job yeah. more suited. But we probably maybe need Gil to come in there and be a sub for Son if Ange wants to keep him. But I'd say we need another wing, someone that's really creative and can, you know, is really good 1v1. I do think you have a point with Toro. He probably could do that on the right. Like when he doesn't play fullback, like that inverted role, he could probably be a substitute for, for Kulusevsky and play in a different way. Like yeah. if Kulusevsky is someone that goes more narrow, he could be an, an option when you want that player to go more wide. Yeah. And the same thing with Gil, he could be that option that goes more wide uh, while Son is someone that goes more now. But when you, and then you look at the striker and I never, th- I don't think Ange has ever had a striker like Kane. And it's going to be really fascinating to see how he uses him and see how he uses the press with 
you know, Son being 30 plus and Kane being 30. Like, can they press like that for a full game? Does he change the pressing system? Does he allow Kane to drop deep? Or will he kind of force him to be more of a classic striker? As you say, Richardson is probably, like, just looking at the system, best suited for that role. Just running, grifting, working hard, jump, you know, being in the box and being, you know, uh, tough, being good, you know, really strong uh, in the air, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a fascinating thing where, you know, both you and me, what we just did, logically, we could find spots for a lot of players. And it becomes clear who immediately don't fit. But, you know, he does need a lot of players for this to be perfect. Because even the way we describe it, it's not perfect. Like, Oh, definitely. definitely. I feel like, I don't feel, feel like if some of those these players like, that you could find a place for, they're probably not the perfect fit. And I mean, look, someone like Kane, like he's such a good player that it'll be interesting to see how he is used. I agree with that. And also because Kane is so good on the ball and with his passing and with his chance creation, that yeah. sort of regard, it's like, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't think Andrew's not going to say to Kane, Hey, you need to try and run in behind because that is never going to happen with Harry. But <laughs> it'll be interesting to see, like, while we say like Angie's very, very, um, attached to sort of his overall philosophy, but he does still, um, he has still set up slightly differently depending on the opposition in terms of where he has his wide winger, for example, and tactics. various tactics like that. So I still, I, I'm really intrigued to a lot of these players. I, it would have been interesting, I think, to see if someone like Dan Juma, we had actually bought what, yeah. what would have happened there. And it's like, I feel like he probably could have been a pretty useful player. On the wing, yeah. He's really technical and creates 1v1. And, yeah. But there's so many players like Kulusevsky as well is like, I don't know, like, is that, is he, is and someone that looks at him and goes like, maybe he could offer me more if he's playing in a slightly different role than necessarily being out on the ring. Yeah. Being that advanced eight is more creative for more narrow, like, or yeah, I think that's what I mean. Like, it's so fascinating also, because when you don't have the right, you know, when you don't have the perfect inverted fullbacks, it becomes really hard to kind of know, oh, if we compromise with the, with the fullbacks, what's the consequence when it comes to wingers? Like if, like just look at, you know, um, Kuzeski likes, is inverted, right? So he likes to, he's left-footed and he likes to play on the right. So that's why he cuts in. Uh, does that mean you want a righty to play as inverted fullback and go on the outside of them? Yeah. How does that, how does those two positions affect each other? Same thing with Gil. Gil is left-footed. So like, Traditionally, when you play inverted uh, wingers, you want him on the right, but he's much better on the on the left. Yeah, like he plays on the left with um, with Sevilla, Sevilla, and so so what does that mean for Dogo, who's also left-footed? Can they play at the same time? Like who goes on the outside? Who goes on the inside? Stuff like that becomes really interesting when you don't have the set squad in front of you. Oh, definitely. And I think like, to me, these are the far more interesting conversations to be having now rather than going through and being like, oh, this player is shit. Oh, that player is good. That player yeah, is shit. Exactly. It's like, because ultimately like, it's, obviously there's a difference in terms of quality of players, 
But so many players are going to look really, really good under a certain manager and in a certain system. They look really, really shit in a different system with a different manager. So when we're just constantly looking back all the time and being like, we should have sold Dyer and Sanchez three seasons ago and all that, it's like, that's how is that interesting to talk about? Like, to me, there's so many interesting things moving forward. And it's fascinating to sit back and look like, oh, it's going to be really exciting to see what Ange actually does. Because we know that there are a bunch of these players that have to go. If we get to the end of this transfer window and we haven't at least cleared out like, you know, four or five of the players we're talking about, then of course, we're like, definitely don't be happy with that. That's going to be a big, um, a big problem if we can't even do that. But also if you're an adult, you're really realistic. I mean, like selling more than seven players, it's hard, especially if you recruited a lot of so-and-so players that haven't played. Like you have to, one, be willing to take a loss. And I'm really encouraged by the whispers I'm hearing about, you know, Levy realizing this finally. The proof is in the pudding, obviously, so we need to see it. But when you're selling, because, you know, when we really count out all the players that we ideally want to sell, it's like 16, 17 players. The, pe- the, the, the place we kind of agreed on, and that's like 10 players. So just being realistic, it's going to take more than one window to fix all of it. Oh, definitely. And like, you know, there's there's still all these questions on director of football and all, all these sort of other bits and pieces and, and things like that. But at least now that there is one in there, um, there is another person in on that side. Um, I, I do have faith that we're going to start shipping these players out because it's it to me it's kind of reached breaking point for the board and i think that the sentiment overall towards levy has never sort of been as uh as heated as it is now and th- see this is where i sit on him that i when people go he doesn't care about the club all he cares about is a beyonce concert i look at that and i go like this is ridiculous like yeah. he definitely cares but i think it's like he's just made he's just made some mistakes uh And some of those, like, honestly, he would have gotten in uh, Mourinho and would have thought, oh, okay, finally, we've got Jose in. I want him all these years ago. We're good. (laughs) Didn't quite work out. Then he ends up going, you know, Nuno happens. And I think that Nuno, to me, that is him trusting in Paratici of like, hey, going down that, maybe misplacing some trust in Paratici. We end up getting Conte. I'm I'm sure that Levy would have been like, oh, okay. All right. Conte will sort it out. Conte will fix it. Hopefully he can perform a little bit of a miracle and do something. And this is not to just go on and like defend Daniel Levy. It's like, but I just think that, you know, there's, it's just so easy to reduce every argument to that. I mean, it's, it's easy. It's, it's that thing where it's that thing when you go, when people say it's nefarious, like it's on purpose when you go, okay, let's not exaggerate. I get that's reactionary. That's your emotion and your frustration talking. It's more sense of, He's a really good businessman who's made mistakes because I think when you're really good at something, you kind of sometimes have this confidence where you assume the same attributes and abilities transfer to this other thing. Yeah. So you take decisions based from the same value system you have as a businessman. Like you, you think it's a good deal to renew like uh renew players because you don't want them to lose value or you think it's a good deal if you can get three million more 
off that player when you want to buy him. Like you look at it from a spreadsheet kind of uh, point of view because that's how you look at this other thing you do where you're really, really successful. But it's that sense of, because a lot of the things that he's done on the pitch has been a failure the last couple of 20 years. I take that more like he's sincere in his will for it to for us to have the best um, product possible on the pitch. Also because that's how he maximizes his the value of his asset. But he's not yet realized his faults and his weaknesses and surrounded himself with enough no-sayings who can challenge him and are in a position of power to challenge him and have real expertise in football. But I'm, I think he's starting to realize that. Like, like, I can't do this on my own. Like, I need to focus on this, and now I need to find the right people for that. You know, really letting go the way he probably needs to. It's going to take a bit of time. But, you know, you know, hitting rock bottom like two or three times these last four years, hopefully will have pushed him to really seeing now that, okay, I have this really good coach who plays the right way. Let me get someone in to recruit for him, to recruit in a way that's sustainable for our club. But that's hope. I mean, uh, reality is something else. Uh, I think it's healthy to be skeptical, but I truly think that this could be the beginning of something new and beautiful. <laughs> oh, totally. Look, I like I think some skepticism's good. Um, but I also I also just kind of believe in like having the thought that, you know, you don't know everything and going into things with that uh is is the best way. Rather than a lot of points of view which go like it's gonna fail, this is gonna happen, this is gonna happen. But that's just I think that's personal psychology almost more. Like I get the sense of I get the sense of, um, you know, how you view stuff like that, how you process information you get has more to do with your own psychology than anything in reality. Totally. So, like, like I'm a positive dude, uh, general, and I'm not going to change because I, uh, you know, support this track, uh, this, this, this uh, burning bush of a club. <laughs> Is that a reference? I think that's the Bible. <laughs> I think that's the Bible. Oh man, I missed it. No, that makes. I get it. That makes sense. No, no, no. Um, but I, but I agree with you. I agree. Like just because I follow like it, like this, 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 this club that can't, you know, succeed. I'm not going to change my fundamental, you know, uh, view of life and how I process, you know, what's going on. And as you said, like if you if you work with anything. You know that whatever product people see, I mean, it's, it doesn't tell the whole story. So being humble is always, I feel, the best uh, course of action. Yeah, I, I agree as well. And like with all these things, when things aren't going well with your club, I personally prefer to kind of step back a little bit, still support it, but I view it more as like maybe how you might view uh, a TV show, for example. And it's like, okay, <laughs> well, this is kind of maybe a bit of a, a rough patch here, but I'm, I'm always int intrigued as to what is next and sort of how we move forward from whatever point we're at. And so like, I kind of see like, you know, we've had th this season, it's like 
the villain has kind of like got an edge up on us a little bit now. <laughs> yeah. And now then it's like, all right, so cool. How does the start of next season start? Are we able to, um, to get back on top of things and regain control of the world? Like where, where does, where do we sort of go from here? So I find for me that that's personally helped me. If this is the hero's, if this is the hero's journey, we just reached the climax of everything was at this lowest point. And now we've about, we're about to learn our lesson and take on the boss again and win, having changed, right? Yeah, 100%. And it's like you've got, you know, you look at maybe some of these other clubs and it's more like a Michael Bay action blockbuster and you're having all yeah. these huge things all the time, but... No character development. Nothing. You know, nothing. We're more rocky. Whereas we're like, you know, 20 seasons in and we we want our character to finally get something. Yeah, exactly. We're rocky. Is it four where that Russian kills that first guy? And yeah. Then and then he has to go to Russia to win? Because up against Drago. That's us. Yeah. That's where we are now. So I think there's hope. I've got hope and, you know. I think I think our listeners feel really inspired right now. So yeah. I think we should end on this high note. <laughs> That's a good place. That's a good place. But yeah, thank you for joining us today, Simon. Really, really lovely chatting. And um, yeah, it was nice to finally do this. I feel honored, mate. This was a really really pleasant chat and we'll have to do some more of these for any listeners that want to find more about you uh i know you're on twitter at uh, at spurs international yeah actually it's at simon yamana so it's s-i-m-o-n-y-e-m-a-n-e wait but is your account called spurs international i used to call myself spurs international and then i realized i'm almost 40 and i changed it to simon but my, my handle has always been Simon Yamane, my name. Okay, there we go. At Simon Yamane. And uh, I, I like that you're very, very active on Twitter. Like there's always some very balanced measure takes to go to. So a good account to follow, I think. Thank you, sir. I mean, I I, I, tw- I, I had a period now, like two or three months where I barely tweeted. But now when, after Conte left, I kind of felt like, okay, now there's something to talk about. I have the policy, like, if I don't have anything nice to say, I try not to be on there. And also, I don't, like, consume negative stuff. And it started to feel really detrimental to my mental health. But now there's, you know, there's there's a new coach to talk about. There's a new philosophy to get get to know. There's a new tactics to break down. There's new players to dream about. There's There's new stuff to kind of get excited about. And I'm really excited. So, so you'll see me around on there well um yeah thanks Simon. we'll do this again too thank you dan go australia yeah <laughs> hey y'all svedia good day mate y'all howdy y'all australia <laughs> crocodile don't they gandalf what gandalf <laughs> the hobbits i love those guys Wait, what do you mean australia with the hobbits what i mean you? i you know i didn't know that was a true story about how australia was came to be lord of the rings that was the yeah <laughs> one of my favorite documentaries about yeah, australia it's, it's great isn't it it's great i'm sure yeah. new zealand would be so happy that we're stealing once again one of their things to make them australian i also i also think the australians appreciate my total disrespect <laughs> i think so i i could say that hey mate this was wonderful you are a wonderful presence on and off the internet um let's do this again you've been listening to a bit spursy 
follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Email us at hello at abitspursy.com and subscribe via your usual podcast platforms.